And we are live. Hey guys, it's the Deadly Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Antonio, this week, filling in for Noah, who is out of the country, having a lovely time. And uh, he'll be back, I believe, next week. And this week, we're going to be discussing Alien, which is one of my favorite horror movies. I think one of the best horror movies of all time. And uh, something that, a film that's really great because it has a lot of currency. You know, a lot of folks have seen it. And it also is one of those movies that you can take apart almost endlessly. You can sort of stick a proboscis down into this movie and infest it with all kinds of different uh, themes and ethics and politics. And we're going to get to all of that tonight. Um, so maybe a little bit of a, a little bit different of a format slightly, maybe a little bit more of a formal format than the one that Noah usually employs. Um, but I think it's justified in this case because we are uh, covering a movie that just has so much content. There's so much to dig through. Just, just almost any one of the bullet points in the outline that's in front of me, we could literally teach an entire college lecture, a two-hour lecture on. So without further ado, let's get into it. Um, we have uh, Shayra and Jim with us tonight as our uh, co-hosts, and they'll be helping us dissect this little uh, face hugger of a movie. So, so let, let's just throw it to Shara and Jim first. Um, give, guys, give me your, give me your. I don't exactly want to have your review of the movie because I want that to be kind of at the end. But tell me, tell me how this movie viscerally impacted you when you watched it. Give me like the sixty second overview of when you finish the movie, you stand up and you say to yourself or you feel to yourself. What? What's 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 your what? How did this movie make you react? Let's go, Jim first. Okay, I was uh, I was waiting to see if Shayra wanted to jump up on that one. Um, yeah, I so I saw this movie originally when I was very very young. I think this was one of my first or, or in the first ten R rated films that I ever saw, and uh, I I think. At that time, I really didn't get. I, I it was it was about trying to survive the film. It was about trying to uh, uh, prove that I was I was grown up enough to watch uh, a, a movie like this. And now um, I rewatched it again today, and I I got up from the film, and I think part of me really wished I could see it for the first time. Um, now as an adult. Um, I think that there, there were several scenes in this film which I remembered viscerally and, and vividly from when I saw it um, as, as a young child. And uh, now I, I wish that I could re-experience some of those and, and be surprised by them. Um, I think what I felt and thought after I saw this was was how they just don't make movies like this anymore, how this is, uh, this has sort of shaped the conversation um, for the past 30, uh, 38 years as it, as it relates to horror movies, 39 years almost. This is, this is so imitated and it's, a, it's a imitated uh, for very good reason. It's a fantastic film. So um, I think that I, the first thing I thought when I saw it today was, "Damn, I wish I, I wish now was the first time I had seen it." Um, but yeah, uh, that's. I, I also probably should say that um, 
it was, I remember it being scarier than it was. Uh, so when I saw it today, it wasn't quite as scary as it was what it was in my own memory, um, which was slightly disappointing, but yeah, I'll when, sort when of throw it up. When you say not as scary, do you, did you still find it to be um, as gripping or dramatic or did yes. that, or did it lose some of its luster just overall? Um, a little bit of both. I still found it very gripping. I feel, I still found it very dramatic. I still liked it. I still wanted to, I, I, I was still moved along in the plot. In fact, I remember getting up and going to the bathroom and pausing it and going, oh, wow, an hour and 15 minutes have gone by. And it seemed as though uh, that hour and 15 minutes had just chugged right along. It didn't feel like that long at all. Um, so this was, it's, but I, I think that I saw some of the editing tricks that this film does. Um, some of the, uh, like, it seems that, that in modern films we get to see the full alien um of course that there's that money shot from alien covenant where it's on top of the the ship and you get to see the full alien in all of her glory um but this in in, in this case i it seemed like they were hiding parts of the alien but due to creature effects due to um the limitations of the time you know it's not uh it, it's not a knock against the film but comparing it to um, modern day special effects, you could tell that there's there's some age on this film. Um, so that's that's where I was coming from there. Shayra, do you wanna? Uh, I just wanna respond about the age part. That is part of the thing that really makes me enjoy not only this film, but also Blade Runner and even the new Blade Runner that came out. They have this very uh, nostalgic kind of um, texturing of technology, you know, like it's it's so interesting. It's its own world, and the way that I usually look at it when I watch it is to look at it as if it is a completely different, you know, world or timeline of our, you know, human uh, being. And you could actually combine Blaine Runner and Alien; they could be in the same exact world, honestly. And and Ridley Scott has uh, been asked about it, and he's like, "Yeah, they they could be in the same world. You got the AI and." <laughs> you know, maybe it's just a different time periods and that and that weird technology, which is why I have my problems with Prometheus, obviously. But um, no, uh, with this film, uh, the feeling I got from it originally, just uh, some little tidbits about me. I have claustrophobia really bad. If I get in a small room, I freak out. If someone like tries to cover me or keep me from being able to move, I have panic attacks. Um, I get really, really uncomfortable with that. But I also have a huge problem with like dirty, grimy, sweaty kind of feelings. Like whenever I, when I lived in Texas, I needed to shower like a million times a day because it was so, I could not be sweaty or gross or grimy. So basically this movie is like a panic attack waiting to happen with me. Like it, it is so claustrophobic, so grimy and sweaty and dirty. And um, it, you wouldn't even need the alien to be there for this, this film to make me uncomfortable. And honestly, that may be the main thing that makes it so great. Like the monster isn't even necessary to create that suspense and that discomfort and that, ooh, what's gonna happen? Ooh, what's happening? Ew, ew. It's, um, it's uncomfortable right off the bat. And I also have played um, 
Alien Isolation, which is supposed to be the follow-up. It's supposed to be between Alien and Aliens. And playing that game also makes me quite uncomfortable, but not as uncomfortable as Alien because there's all these small corridors and little closets that she's in, and ugh, it's not okay. It, it, it causes me a, a huge amount of discomfort, but I love it. Like, I, I love feeling the emotions in, a safe, in the safety of my own home. Um, but that's actually one of the reasons why um, I see movies like Alien and other movies differently. You know, when um, in NeverEnding Story, when Bastian goes into the bookstore and he says, oh, I've read all these books, and he wanted to try reading The NeverEnding Story, and he's like, you don't want to read that one. This one's not safe. Your other books are safe. This one's not safe. I like it when a film makes me feel a little bit like I'm unsafe, like something bad could happen to me. And Alien brings that out of me even before, you know, face huggers happen. So <laughs> it's 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 got a great uh, feel to it. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all of the the entire ship is a piece of shit. Like that's one of the interesting things about this film and contrasting with, with uh, modern day sci-fi. It seems like modern day sci-fi is trying to prove to us that in the future technology is going to be awesome. And one of the interesting things about Alien is that ship is it breaks down. It's it's disgusting. It's dirty. Steam all shooting people, out. <laughs> steam shooting everywhere because reasons. I mean that that ship is a piece of shit, and I think that's a really interesting touch, and it makes the film and the characters so relatable. One of the geniuses of the screenplay is that it, you know you've got to be able to transfer a 1979 audience with fairly limited experiences with um, real high concept sci-fi to a, a distant future. And one of the ways they do that is it turns, it turns all of the characters into basically truck drivers. So yeah, we can't identify with astronauts, but we can identify with a truck driver who just wants his share. Um, and is afraid that the company is going to cheat him out of, of, of his salary. I think that's one of the brilliant things about the way this film is constructed. And I, and you're, I think you're right. It works on me too, in, in a way that gets me into this feeling of, of dirty, grimy, shitty places and whatnot. It's interesting that you talk about the, the kind of the populism of the film's design, because um, I, I kind of, as someone who has uh, read a lot of sci-fi from a lot of different eras, it seems to me that there's been kind of a trend of oscillating between two extremes in, in that aesthetic regard. So, for example, um, with Star Trek, everything is very clean and shiny, by, particularly by like the 1960s standards. Everything looks very polished, everything works fine, people are getting along, we're all communists now or whatever, socialists. Um, and the, the general aesthetic is very is that the future is polished. The future is going to be more chrome than the past. The future is going to be cleaner than the past. The future is going to be, you know, sharper dressed than the past, ideally. And, um, and you see a reaction against this aesthetically by the mid-70s in the form of Star Wars, which is deliberately designed for all of the, uh, um, all of the technology to look used. That was one of the purposes. And I think that's also where you start to see the populism of character that you guys were talking about earlier. Because, um, for example, you know, in Star Trek, almost everyone in the main, in the main crew 
is a professional of some kind. You know, Mr. Spock is obviously like a multiple PhD and across various sciences. So Scotty, you know, Kirk is a is a captain. You know, he's got a, a position of high authority. He's a career military officer. Um, but by the time we get along to Star Wars, for example, we've got, you know, a farm boy and like this like kind of podunk smuggler who probably would, you know, had a pickup truck in the Earth version of the story. You know what I mean? And like, you know, put put Obi-Wan and Luke under a tarp and like drove across the border or whatever, you know. Um, and so and so Alien coming only a few years after it is very much in this kind of grittier design aesthetic which you also see echoed in blade runner you see it echoed in terminator you see it echoed throughout the the late 80s and early 90s and then you gradually see an inversion back to the sort of hyper chrome look which is now dominating sci-fi that's coming out these days um and so i guess i guess on that note it's it's appropriate to pivot to the imagery of this film which is i think you know, as as far as peeling away the layers of this film like an onion, I think the biggest layer, the thickest layer, um, the most interesting, the tastiest layer is is the skin of it, is the imagery of the film. I think the imagery of the film is what holds this all together. I asked you guys, you know, what was your emotional reaction when you watched this movie? My emotional reaction whenever I watch this movie is kind of a feeling of of awe, and I don't that may be overstating it a little bit, but my reaction to this movie on an emotional level is that this movie does its symbolism, its imagery almost pitch perfectly. Like it's, it's design is, is almost ideal. It's almost impossible to imagine how they could have improved on the, the design elements of the movie. Um, you know, the, the xenomorph in particular you now is, is a, a work of genius by HR Giger in that it's basically a Jungian archetype given flesh, you know, it's, 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 it's something dark from a nightmare come to life. It has, it has a nondescriptness that makes it terrifying at the same time as it is a very specific, identifiable, iconic entity. Um, and so let's get into, let's get into the imagery of this film, which I think is the strongest element and the element that really drives not only the narrative, but also a lot of the philosophical elements of the film. So this is just some of the stuff some some of the stuff that I wrote down I'll I'll um I'll just go over some of this very quickly. So uh for example the, there's an, an element of light and darkness. Um you know the crew uniforms are all white or light colored. Um most of the ship's living areas are toned light colored. Um most of the more dangerous areas of the ship are toned in a darker color and we're similarly kind of queued up uh, because the everything related to the xenomorph has like a black oily you know sort of sort of thing that just naturally the, the thing about this film's imagery is that it naturally primes your instincts in exactly the way that the that the filmmaker Ridley Scott wants you to go so in the same way um there's a juxtaposition between industrial and organic um you know the the ship the good guys are defined by metal Things that are things that are you know um, stamped, stead, angular. The Nostromo is is very um, is very geometric construction, as opposed to the the navigator's ship and the xenomorph, which have contours which evoke living matter rather than you know industrial craftsmanship. Um, so I have a theory on yes. 
so the the white how they're wearing white and everything when they are um woken up and they're in this big white room uh, i see it as their babies being born uh and they are in the womb of mom because they call the ship mother um and they this is uh, all a a child going out in the world story and this is a very common uh storyline with all horror is uh young people growing up and realizing how bitter and disgusting and horrible everything is and that's what this is in a more exaggerated way but you know even the typical slasher film goes down this whole line this is why when you have sex you get stabbed to death you know you're you're coming of age it's a coming of age tale like when you start to grow up you get to realize how shitty everything is and uh get to be sad and and in the darkness and in the grossness and you know maybe that's why it's a lot more um wet everywhere when you go where the alien ships are and everything it's it's gross and dark and ill um so yeah that's i feel like they were just babies being born and then they leave the mother's womb and and realize how dark and horrible reality is so it's almost like go ahead jim well i I just wanted to pick up on that a little bit like there were uh, when you were talking about the the design of the ship and the lighting and um, the the color palette that Scott uses, I I noticed that there were three areas that were lit that that were white, and that was the medical bay, the airlock, and the dinner, uh, the 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 diner scene. Um, and in two of those areas, I think it really fits with the type of thing that Shara uh, was talking about, and in the the diner, I think it fits a lot with what you were talking about because that that's a place that we are supposed to feel like everything's going to be okay. We're supposed to, like it's priming us to be relaxed. And then, of course, the most iconic scene from this film takes place in that well-lit area. And I think there's there's a lot of ways in which Scott's playing with our expectations in this film, something similar to what you were talking about. Um, he he primes us to be okay in the dinner scene, and then of course, of course the, the the xenomorph jumps out of John Hurt's chest. There's another very interesting thing that he does as well. So Gorney Weaver, right now, to us, she's a star. She's an iconic, amazing actress. But this was, I think, her third film, uh, her first film uh, where she's second billing. Tom Skerritt was first billing. So when he dies midway through the film, we don't know who the fuck our protagonist is. A, a modern, a, people going to that film in 1979 don't realize that Sigourney Weaver is a star they think Tom Skerritt is the star. They think he's going to be the final girl, so to speak. And I, by killing him off halfway through the film, it's basically signaling to us, no, 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 everybody is at risk here. And you don't know who your hero is until, of course, Ripley um, rises and, and, and does all the things she does. So. Uh, I have a I have a theory of that too. Shara's <laughs> <laughs> theories. My theories. Um, Real quick though, I was going to say that ahead. that's an even better observation in light of the fact that um, Tom Skerritt's character dies off screen. Like it's it it they really hit the the unexpected note there. You know, you're you are expecting him to make it through the film, 
And then not only does he die, you don't even get to, to see him. He just, he just disappears until like, you know, five seconds near the end of the movie to give you some closure. So yeah, the, the film is trying to throw you off balance at every moment. That's, it, it is so trying to like kill all the tropes. Uh, and now it's obviously tropes in and of itself because everybody's copied a lot of the stuff. But the reason why uh, we have Ripley uh, or whatever, <laughs> but she, she's okay. She is the person that is supposed to be the asshole who dies first. Uh, she is the one who's by the book. She is the one like, we're going to do things this way. She's the one with no heart and says to leave him out of the ship. She's the one who's the asshole. She's supposed to be the first person who dies. And you're supposed to have a little bit of relief. Like, oh, you know, fuck that bitch anyway. That was the point of that character. And we took that character all the way to the end. She was the one that survived because in reality, when you do things by the book, when you do what you're supposed to do, because there's protocols for these things for a reason, that's how you stop from dying and, and everybody wants uh one of the big themes of the walking dead which my daughter and i get so pissed off at watching the walking dead at this point but it's it's this idea that if you have heart and empathy and love for everybody that's what's going to survive the sociopaths are all going to die and all the good nice happy loving people are going to live no motherfucker <laughs> that is not reality like the sweetheart loving people are going to die first they are going to die first you're going to be destroyed by the zombies. Um, but I understand why they tell stories in that way. But this basically turned that on its head. It's like, no, the person who is able to say, hey, I may have these certain emotional feelings. And we know she's emotional when we see her with the cat. When we see her talking to Dallas, we, we know that there's, you know, a, a heart in there. But she goes, you know what? I have to put this aside because this is the way we need to do things so we all don't die. And... um I don't know. It, it, that is the most interesting thing about her character is she was supposed to be first to die. So. Well, that that raises an interesting that raises an interesting point about the care the politics of the movie, or which is you know how, where what's the source of authority? How does this movie regard um, authority as proceeding? How, what's what's good and what's evil about this about in in, in this movie? And I th would submit to you guys that the authoritarianism in this movie is is kind of ambiguous. Like, you know, Ripley is ultimately the good guy. And so R Ripley's calls are good calls, despite their being hard calls. And so there's an element of the great man of history here, right? In, in, that, in that, you know, Ripley is the one who, despite everybody else kind of flying off the handle, she's the one who continually sees things with clarity, tries to act with, with responsibility to the greater good, and is capable of making the hard decisions that end up sinking other people, and and indeed the her her persistence in making particular calls in the face of opposition by the rest of by the rest of the gang, her insistence on getting everyone on board with her idea rather than going along with the rest of the gang is eventually what saves her life. You know, her her persistence in continuing to hunt the alien after um, the captain is killed. Um, her initial skepticism about letting um, John Hurt into the lock or, or John Hurt through the airlock when uh, when he's all infested. Um, that she's she's the one who makes hard hard decisions that are necessary to make and that are ultimately beneficial for everybody, but are unpopular at the time. Which is kind of a there's there's an element of this which we might call authoritarian. In that you know she she's obviously the one who's right in the face of the you know democratic collective 
that is that is opposing her. Um, and but on the other hand, the the authoritarianism of the movie seems to be limited because the captain is an idiot. I mean, he makes a bunch of terrible, terrible decisions that that are fairly obviously bad calls. Um, and the the corporation um, is completely evil, which and that's the the ultimate authority, the ultimate hierarchy, the person, the the entity that establishes the rules under which the society that we encounter is opera is operating. So. Um, because of that, um, I would say that the eth that, that the politics of the movie are not so much exactly authoritarian as they are kind of more in a Nietzschean sense, you know, in a sense of will to power, where you know he there there's an immediacy. He who hesitates is lost. If you if you spend time dicking around wondering about the alien or being in awe of it or being scared of it instead of deciding and acting against it, you're going to be screwed over. If you don't take an aggressive approach that is that is you know very very firm-handed and up, but also at the same time uh, cold-blooded, then you're going to end up screwed over. If you trust the organization that provides you the rules and that is telling you what what you know what's going on, there is an anti-authoritarianism, a sort of subversive authoritarianism there. You know, the person who sees clearly is the person who sees past the corporate BS in addition to seeing past just the group, the BS of the group dynamic. So um, I think there's kind of a Nietzschean undertone to the, to the movie's politics. And I wonder what you, what you two have to have to reflect on that. I absolutely agree with you. I think that that's like, it's definitely this, this Superman, you know, it, there's an existentialist um, train strain to the philosophy of this film where um, it's it, it is almost person against beast, and and the the person Ripley's the one with the um, the the intellect and the ability to reason, whereas the beast, um, the alien, is only driven by these primal urges, um, and I, and I think that that was uh, played out in the Ian Holm head on a desk uh, scene where uh, I think Lambert says you admire it and uh, uh, Ian Holmes says, Ian Holmes' character, Ash, says um, I admire its simplicity, I admire its, uh, I admire its purity, um, it's a perfect organism uh, and, and really his definition in that case of a perfect organism, which is then of course echoed in Prometheus and the alien covenant, which I think we're all going to try and forget. Um, but the, the, his definition of a perfect organism is one that is incapable of reason. And Ripley is one who is both capable of reason, but also driven by the primal urge to survive. And so I think that goes along with, with your Nietzschean reading of the, the film. Yes, and that's actually a really interesting point, the, the point about survival specifically, because you can argue that the thing that distinguishes the alien from the rest of us is precisely that its, its purity of essence is such that it has no will to survive. It is, it is just id to, to destroy. It is destructive id, and that's, that's, that's the sum total of the being. It exists only to seek out other things and destroy them. 
There is no there is no survival element of its of its life cycle. And indeed, if you look at it, literally, there's no survival element of its life cycle. You know, the face hugger goes and impregnates somebody and then dies. And then the guy that it impregnates then dies and then produces the xenomorph. So, you know, literally two things, it's it's two things have to die in order for the one thing to live minimum. Do you see the facehugger as a separate entity, though? Because I always saw the facehugger as sort of like the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of curious about your reading there. I First, we have to establish this. Are you guys a director's cut people, or are you guys a theatrical cut people? Because there's two different answers if you go with either or. Uh, can you explain the difference, then? <laughs> So there's a scene that's cut out of the original Alien that's in the director's cut that is fucking fantastic, um, but that would make no sense with the rest of the entire storyline, uh, with, the, with the sequels and prequels and all the other shit. But um, the scene that was cut out was, she actually happens upon the rest of the people. She sees what happened to them. When she's, uh, she goes up in a room and, and they're all turning into the eggs. The humans are turning into the eggs. And and mind you, Giger's original artwork is used in this scene uh, because they, they changed the eggs to a, a four-part thing that, that spreads apart because it looked too much like a vagina. It was a vagina, but whatever. <laughs> like you see a, a vulva-type shape at the top of the egg. It's supposed to split open. Um, and that original shape to the egg is up there. And they're forming into the vagina egg thing. And um, Dallas, while he's transforming into this thing, uh, he's like, kill me, kill me. And she blowtorches all of the rest of the fucking crew. Like, she lights them all on fire with a fucking flamethrower, <laughs> which is an awesome scene. But it goes against some of the other lore because the eggs are actually us. The reason why there was a bunch of eggs down at the bottom that uh, John Hurt's character goes to inspect is because those were previous beings that got turned into eggs and uh, have the face huggers waiting for them. So uh, you birth the, the, the final form, but you also become uh, what's needed for the impregnation part. So it, it's a weird cycle that they created. And um, I know that, that O'Bannon, he had studied a lot about parasites and other bug bugs. So he did a lot of his uh, ideas about this off of bugs and also old sci-fi movies, of course. But um, uh, it, it's, um, it's an interesting idea that we, we would become the eggs that the facehuggers yeah. live in. Yeah, to answer your question, Jim, um, I, I would regard the, the facehugger as basically like the spermatozoa in, in the life cycle. And so, and so the alien that comes out, and I think that Ridley Scott actually explicitly um, backs this view up at some point. Because um, one of the points about the alien is precisely that the alien has humanoid features. They, 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 they wanted the alien to actually have like fingers and legs and knees that, that articulated similarly to humans and so on. And the purpose of, of doing so was to illustrate that the alien is a mixture of the facehugger's DNA with the DNA of the host body. So that it takes on some features, it conserves some features of the, of the original organism. And, um, you know, while, while we can get into all kinds of nerdy debates about alien lore, um, the, it, the successive alien movies do preserve this, this feature of, of the alien life cycle, where whatever the alien 
um, infested, it takes on particular features of the thing that it infested when it when it births. Um, I think this is seen most most significantly in the Predalien and also in the um, alien that uh, comes out of a dog. I think that was an alien. Was that an aliens? I think that was an aliens. Well, that makes, yeah, I mean, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I had not heard about the, uh, the director's cut uh, version, which flies in the face of the whole queen alien that uh, happens in the later sequels. Uh, it, it seems, I, I guess we should take a one moment to just sort of mourn the fact that this whole alien lore, nerdy conversation as it is, um, has gotten... It, like a lot of franchises, it's it's gotten away from itself in in ways that that are rather disappointing. You know, Aliens uh, was a great sort of action film. Uh, Alien Three has its its problems, as with all the other sequels. But it seems like they're changing a lot of the things that we liked about the first one, where it was this enclosed Die Hard. It was like Die Hard in space with an alien, um, and, and yeah, I, I guess. So uh, one of yeah. the things I'd like to point out. Uh, so have you guys heard of Dark Star? Uh, it is a comedy film. It was uh, a, a student film that uh, O'Bannon, the writer of Alien, um, was a part of. And uh, uh, who's who's the guy who did uh, Aliens? God damn it, I can't think right now. James John Carpenter. Cameron. Uh, James Cameron. Yes, James Cameron, that's it. So uh, they did a... a student film called dark star and it was a comedy film out in space it was done before star wars um and o'bannon just later on before star wars ever came out because this was written before star wars he was like i i would like to make this comedy movie we made which is by the way a cult classic now and if you want to check it out it's pretty bad and funny but um he wanted to make it into a more serious sci-fi film. So he started writing a more serious version, but of course it was B-movie. If you read the original script, uh, very B-movie, um, very uh, shitty, I guess is the best word. It's It was good, but it, it was, you know, those typical shitty horror movies, right? Um, and when he started working with one of his friends, they upped it up a little bit, made it a little bit more interesting. Then they presented it to 21st Century Fox and it just kind of sat on their desk. But when Star Wars came out, they were like, all right, we're going to do space. We're going to do space. We're going to do space. What do we have that has space? The only movie that had space was Alien. So Alien became a movie. And uh, the corporate people came in. There was a bunch of writers in corporate that came in and pretty much gutted this script and changed it a lot. Um, one of the original aspects of the original Squinder to any of the characters at all. Um, he did not specify male or female with any of the characters. The uh, corporate people came in and they were like, oh, we need more interesting characters. These are too robotic of characters. Um, and they also were the ones that created the AI. They, they added a lot of elements to the film that made it pretty good, but also it's not the same film anymore. Um, so I think because there were so many chefs in the kitchen, <laughs> you talk to any of them, and they're going to tell you, oh, this is this is this goes in line with what the story is supposed to be. Oh, this goes in line with what the story is going to be. And if you watch any of the extras or the documentaries on this film, every single person they interview has a different idea of what this story is supposed to do. So the fact that it veers off in every what direction 
it's not even surprising because there's just too many chefs in the kitchen. Now there's putting everything into the pot and it tastes like shit. So, well, while while that's true, um, I think I think there are a couple elements in this in in Alien that particularly get betrayed by all successive movies and sort of set Alien apart as as a unique item that gets retconned by everything that comes after it in a significant sense. Um, and that is there's there's the two the two elements that define the alien as a villain, right? In other words, um, you know, thematically we might say that the alien is a rapist. I mean, that's the obvious analogy. But in terms of in terms of actual features, rather than what he represents, um, the there's two main qualities that the alien has, and the first is implacability. The alien is completely unstoppable. He's defined by his unstoppability. The whole point of the alien is that there is nothing that can survive account an encounter with the alien. There is nothing that there is no there is no resistance that you can ultimately offer. You can only delay the end for a time. It's ultimately going to get you as long as it as long as there is a possibility of it being able to to reach you. So um, you know, and, and we see this queued up early in the movie when they come on the navigator and you see this huge armored fossilized being that's you know been there for millions of years and is so much more technologically advanced than we are. And it just is ripped through like I think they even say in the movie it looks like it something it went through it like it was made of tissue paper, you know, um, and uh, and, you know, yes, fire does deter the xenomorph, but it doesn't injure the creature. And in fact, you know, when Dallas is by himself relying on the flamethrower and the xenomorph comes for him, it, it gets him. It, it, he's not even able to put up even a token resistance. Um, when, when Ridley spaces the xenomorph, it's out in hard vacuum and it still keeps moving. It still grabs onto the spacecraft and hauls itself up for one final go at, 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 at Ridley Ripley. And, and the, the, one of the interesting symbolic features of the movie is that nobody actually survives untouched in that, you know, the Ripley doesn't actually ever touch the alien or else she would have died, but the face hugger falls on her earlier in the movie, which is a symbolic demonstration that, you know, if face hugger were alive, she would have been the next victim. She would have been dead. And the only reason that she didn't die was simply that the, she didn't come up at the opponent with the opponent at the moment when the opponent was actually capable of doing anything. Um, and so that's the first aspect that is completely shot out by all successive alien movies is this this alien it, it's not even clear that the alien is killed by the blast from the uh, from the shuttle at the end. You just see it get blown off the shuttle and it flies off. It's not necessarily clearly indicated that the alien is dead. So it could still be alive. It could still just be floating around eternally in hard vacuum waiting for somebody to you know pop around. And so, um, it's it's totally implacable, and that's completely every successive alien movie figures out some way to kill the alien or make the alien have a weakness in some substantial way, and that goes completely against the the core theme of this movie, which is there is only surviving the the rape. There isn't there is not defeating it. You can't get past it. You are only going to to get it away from you permanently. That's the best you can manage. The second element that is. Um, key to this movie that is completely betrayed by all future um, alien movies is that there's an element of mystery. You don't know anything about the Xenomorph other than that the corporation knows about it 
and that it's a predator. Like we can infer a couple things about its life cycle, but we don't know for sure if it can see, we don't know if it can smell, we don't know what, what senses it even has. Um, we don't know how intelligent it is or not. We don't know if it's capable of language. We don't know if it's a single individual that, you know, has infested this whole ship or whether there's like a whole species just crawling around the universe out there. You know, we don't know if it's a bioweapon. We have, we have no clues as to its origins. We have no clues as to how old it is, what kind of life form it is. Um, it, it, it's, it's defined by its mystery. The only elements that, that are introduced to make us, um, more aware of it are designed to just inspire us with again its implacability and its and its unknowability you know like for example when they discover that the face hugger bleeds acid you know that's that's designed to terrify us that you know there's nothing you can do to stop this creature this creature there is is going to get what it wants to do done and there's nothing you can do but except maybe survive it and again, you can thank the executives for that one too, because that was a plot hole in O'Bannon's original script. And they were like, we have to create some reason why they can't take it off. Like anybody would try to take it off. You can't just leave it there. And so they came up with the acid uh, inside of it to, to show that they, they had to keep it on. So that was a, a plot hole that they fixed. <laughs> and it's really fucking frightening. Which is a genius way to fix a plot hole. I mean, there are no, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I do like exercises where I'm like, all right, I'm going to make a, an alien, like a writer's exercise. And I can't come up with a better one than the xenomorph. And for all of the reasons that you are articulating, Antonio, and, and the acid for blood is, it for me, I, I wonder how many options they went through before they arrived at, ah, the blood is acid. Like that's, I, I'm, I'm sort of in awe of, of the writing, uh, of the creation of this creature from a writing standpoint. And, and I think, um, but to go back to some of the points you were talking about, Antonio, and, and since we spent a lot of time uh, in our review of the thing, discussing just this question, would you consider this a Lovecraftian uh, <laughs> villain, uh, Antonio, or, or a Lovecraftian story? That's a good question. Um, I think the answer is no, and, and it's simply because while the, while the opponent is immutable and while it has an air of mystery about it, it's not ultimately it's not ultimately uninteractive in other words at the end of the day you don't only have the choice of facing the madness that is your reality at the end of the day you can't actually beat it and live to fight another day you can you can it may, you may not have killed it it may still be around it may be coming back for you but you can you know push it off and it'll live to and, and live to fight another day you know, and and you can also, to some extent, understand it. You know, you can you can understand how it reproduces. You can understand what sort of threats it represents. You know, it likes to move through air shafts. It's vulnerable to fire to some extent. You know, etc. Um, so while it has Lovecraftian elements in the sense of being being a true other that is impenetrable and that's the whole source of its menace is is precisely that it is such an other that is such an inversion of what we regard as a normal benign entity um 
I don't think it's it, it it comes close to being Lovecraftian, but ultimately the fact that you the fact that the fact that um, Ripley is prevails against it in the particular way that she does, I think makes the story ultimately not a Lovecraftian one. Although I'm I'm open to arguments to the contrary. I mean, it obviously borrowed some elements from Lovecraft. I mean, when you have these like tentacle things coming down and and pulling them up, and uh, you don't know what happens to them. That, at least in the theatrical version, you don't see what happens to them. They just kind of go away. <laughs> you don't know what happens. Um, uh, there, there's elements, but it's clearly not. I mean, it's clearly a slasher film. It might as well be Jason or or Freddy or, you know, it's a slasher film just with a, a it's slasher film in space. Um, you know, you have a bunch of people and, and they get killed off by this, this monster, um, which is technically also a human in some, uh, some ways, because it's John Hurt's baby, I guess. I don't know what you'd call it. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's got elements. Obviously, you know, Lovecraft is very much loved and, and people like to throw in little shout outs, but I, I don't know if it is um, now, Lovecraftian. Here's another element in which I would say it's not Lovecraftian, and and that is that um, in Lovecraft, things don't happen to you because you deserve them exactly. Things happen to you just because the nature of the universe is horror, and it's going to come and get you eventually. One of the elements in which this is a very conventional horror film is that it definitely follows um, aspects of the so-called morality play when it comes to... Um, um, you know, sketching its broad ethics out. You know, in, in other words, in terms of who dies, the people who die are generally people who so so called deserve to more than the people who survive. You know, ultimately Ripley. So Ripley survives at the end, not necessarily through arbitrary whim, as might happen in a Lovecraftian story, um, but rather because she's the toughest, smartest cookie who makes the who has the clearest head and makes the best calls. Um, and and that's that's definitely a, a sharply distinguishing feature, um, and and the aspect in which this is conventional is you know, um, there's there's a there's a way that you can cast this movie where the humans are the invaders, right? That that you know we we it's sort of like a Frankensteinian cautionary tale. You know, we overreached, we went into the forbidden knowledge, and we sought it out, and we opened it up, and there was a face hugger in there. Oh no, you know. So, um, so there's an element of, almost of a critique of imperialism, you know, there's this capitalistic mining company that's like all, you know, corporate and stuff and, and, you know, because of the profit in it in the weapons division, probably they want to go and, and retrieve this thing and it turns out to be a horrible mistake that's super costly in lives. And the people who end up dying are, you know, the you know the first guy who dies is the guy who's dumb enough to like poke the alien egg and look right at it, and and you know the next person to die is the person who wanders off and is looking at the cat, and the next person to die after that is the guy who's like alone in the in the corridor, etc. So there's an element where where the people who get picked off are kind of the the people that we conventionally are cued to expect would be picked off in a horror movie. Um, and so as far as the ethics go of this movie, what do you, first of all, what do you guys think about the element of, of imperialism? To what extent, to what extent is the alien a just punishment? You know, the native, the native that we arrive and find is actually better equipped to handle our imperialism. What do you think? Let's start with Shara. So, um, I, it's really hard cause I don't know who the bad guy is in this film. Um, you know, is it the alien or is it the corporation? 
um, they would have gone on their merry way and woken up near Earth and been completely fine had the corporation not purposely sent them there to do this thing. Um, we we don't know, at least as far as Alien is concerned, I'm sure there's lots of other things we could look at to figure more stuff out, but from what we know from Alien, there's nothing really telling us that the alien is bad. Um, just that the alien has got the nature to do this this stuff, you know. Um, it would be it would be like sending your own child to a, a place where it's super dangerous and like oh let's see what happens if they die like it, it seemed more like daddy was being an asshole and uh, using mom to uh, take them to that location. Um, so I I feel like the bad guy is the corporation um, and the bad guy is the corporation also in that they have a combined force. Uh, it, it's a monopoly obviously. If you look at the name of of the corporation, it's a uh, it's obviously like an American name and an Asian name mixed together. So it's uh, showing that they've basically taken a monopoly over Earth and are, are controlling everything and just see a lot of people as little experiments that they can toy around with and uh, test things out on. So um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's anti-authority, but in the same token, um, you have Ripley here. The reason why she survived or she probably would have survived even more so, is that she was trying to follow the rules and the protocol. Uh, and I almost wonder if that was part of what they were trying to test, you know? But but then they put an AI in here to, to thwart it. So, I, I mean, it's very confusing to me. I, I don't know. It is the space cowboy kind of a theme, too. I, it's It could be a lot of things. But I feel like the corporation's the bad guys, and I feel like their motivation isn't very clear. And that's part of the the thing that scares me the most about the film. Like, what are their motivations? What are they wanting? What are they, what yes. are they planning? So, so Jim, so to, to throw it over to you, um, to what extent do you think that the alien is sort of an Aesop's scorpion? Again, you know, to what extent is the alien the, the reactionary element in the film and it's really the people or perhaps the corporation or the, that are the bad guys and the alien is simply doing what aliens do. The xenomorph does what the xenomorph does. It's the Aesop's scorpion. You know, you, you put it on it on your back and because you're an idiot, it stings you. And then you go, ah, I'm dying, I'm drowning. You freaking shoved a bunch of eggs down my throat. Now I'm a chest burster. And he goes, well, what did you expect me to do? I'm a freaking face hugger. I mean, that's what I do. So what do you think, Jim? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, I agree with your interpretation, Shara's interpretation of the, of the corporation being the, uh, the, the villain of the film. Um, I, well, I, a couple things. First, I think that there's an anti-capitalist message in this film because the uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character and um, uh, his buddy, the um, African-American, uh, his African-American friend, um, I Parker. forget his, Parker, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, Parker and, and those two characters are clearly immediately motivated by whether or not they're going to get their shares. And in fact, the only reason they agree to go down to this, this planet is this, this, on this exploration mission is because there's a clause in their contract that says they won't get any money if they don't. Presumably, the corporation is sending these incredibly mal-equipped people to this... Uh, to this place to get this alien uh, under the the auspices of the quote the 
crew is expendable um, for some financial or profit motive. Um, so I think there's the villain might be capitalism. It might be the idea of being motivated by a, a an avarice. Um, and what goes along with that is so so this this anti-capitalist message is would cast the villain as the corporation. However, structurally, within the the content of the film from the point A to point B, the primary antagonist is the xenomorph. Just on a script structural level, group protagonists want to do X, y, and Z. The thing that is presenting preventing them from doing X, y, and Z is the fact that they've got this killer alien aboard the ship and they're trying to to kill it or or get past that as their their primate that's the primary blockade to to achieving their goal so from a script structural standpoint it has to be the xenomorph but from a thematic standpoint and where this film is the ethics of this film it's certainly the corporation and certainly the idea of capitalism uh, one thing i also wanted to note while you were talking about Harry Dean Stanton's character who goes after the cat and then ends up dying for his efforts. What's interesting about the final act of the film, um, the, what would it be? It would be the sixth or seventh segment of the film. Um, Ripley goes after the cat as well. So we're expecting her to encounter the xenomorph um, on her way to, to rescue Jones, but the xenomorph ends up going after uh, Parker and and Lambert in, Lambert instead, and that I think speaks to another theme that I was that I was trying to articulate earlier about the uh, the inexplicability and the unpredictability of this film. Um, you can't predict who's going to die next because the same action that Harry Dean Stanton's character and that Ripley. Um, pursue the same objective that both of them pursue leads to two dramatically different different results um but yeah going back to the ethics of it and the villain i think scripturally it has to be um the xenomorph but from a uh, from a larger philosophical point of view i think there's a definite anti-capitalist maybe this is more star trek after all because we're all socialists now here's here's an interesting way to tie it together and and to 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 tie the the antagonists together it, thematically and here we turn to of course the most important element of discussing this film which is rape and so as a top level discussion i would like to suggest that that rape is the movie is really about rape top to bottom and the reason why the movie succeeds so well is precisely because every pretty much every designed decision in the movie every story decision and every thematic decision in the movie ultimately comes down to emphasizing the movie's rapiness you know to emphasize to, to to cueing us that the movie is almost sexless with the with the one exception of ripley at the very very end the movie is almost sexless um, but from a design perspective, it throws sex in your face from the first from the first five minutes, you know, constantly. And so in discussing rape from a top down perspective, um, the, the element that the that the xenomorph and, and before you do, Antonio, let's I think for for some people who might not be familiar with the film or can you trace all of the um, imagery that you're talking about? Uh, phallic representations, etc. 
just so that we can start from a beginning. Like, I, I can imagine some people, I agree with you, of course, but I can imagine some people arguing that this isn't as rapey as you're, as you're saying. So let's, let's try and support that thesis. Go ahead. I know you've got all this sort of laid out. So sure. that's, this is a good idea. Um, okay. So, so as far as the specific sequence of rapey imagery, um, as far as the sequence of like actual rapes. So the, the, the beginning rape in the plot is with um, the, the alien. So a stranger basically in a dark alley, you know, in this, in this pod on a, on an alien ship in a lonely, on a lonely planet. Um, that that jumps you and forces its dick down your throat and now it's now and then now it's impregnating you and blah blah you're not even aware of it but you know th this is this is the first sexual assault it's sort of like a, a forced fellatio on on um on cane and um and then the next thing is and, and so this is this is particularly transgressive because they specifically choose a man to be raped for the first two rape scenes and and this is this has an extra shocking element because typically we're looking at at you know most things through the male gaze and so while we might expect that that rape is a is a fact of of female life and that it's a trauma that women uh, particularly suffer most of us men who have not been sexually assaulted tend to it doesn't tend to map on our radar since it's such an uncommon cultural element for us to encounter in our own lives so um so the movie really wakes you up even if you are a man by saying yeah there's going to be a dick down your throat <laughs> and then that's oh god okay now now i'm watching so okay so then then what happens with kane is that he he gets you know basically kind of raped again or a, a murder rape you know where where you know he's penetrated and it bursts out of his chest it's this penis-like object fleshy bursts out of his chest and and kills him and the the bursting out of the chest it's not it's not accidental that he bursts out of the abdomen in a way that is reminiscent of of giving birth and while you know birth is something that you know we've we've all undergone and that that is necessary for the preservation of the species and a lot of uh, romance has evolved around it in in human culture um it's also something that is viewed by many women as a a traumatic violent event and this uh this kane's symbolic giving birth to this alien in this violent violative way is is a key symbol in the movie that gives voice to these and and and, and depicts these kinds of experiences that women have in a way that's relatable outside of specifically the female experience um and so then the next rapey scene is we have we have um ash the android assault ripley and he picks an unusual means that doesn't really make a lot of sense unless we consider that that it's trying to reinforce the theme of rape over and over and over again and so again he takes a rolled up newspaper which in this case is a phallic symbol and he forces it down ash's throat in in a sort of a mimicry of what the face hugger was trying to do um and and as he's being fought off his blood is revealed to be milky white, like semen. So he just he just gushes semen all over Ripley while he's trying to force a magazine down her throat. In this in this again really violent rapey kind of scene, um, he literally bleeds cum. You know, it's 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 super gross. Um, Lambert's character, the other the other female character, 
um, she is, it's implied that she's literally raped to death. Like you don't actually see her death happen on screen. It happens off screen, but the way that her death happens, you see the aliens again, standing in for, for a phallus, for a penis, this tail come up her leg, go up under her skirt between her legs. And then the camera cuts and we hear her screaming. And so again, it's implied that she's literally raped to death. Um, similarly, Parker, um, we don't know how the, how the captain dies, uh, um, off, he dies off screen. We don't know how Henry Dean Stanton's character dies. He dies, um, off, off screen or dies. You know, we, we later see them, you know, get nested in the director's cut. Um, but, uh, Parker's character is killed again. He's not, he's not, he just, he doesn't have his neck broken. He doesn't, he's slashed or ripped apart or anything like that by the alien. Um, he's, he, he's killed by the aliens, you know, second mouth popping out like a, again, very penis-like and then smashing him. Um, and so again, this is, this is all very, this is all very, um, very violent male rapey imagery. And this is contrasted also that it, so, so, so that, that all establishes basically that the movie is about rape from the get go. But, in, in addition to that, to reinforce this theme, and this is what, why the movie is so brilliant, because it, 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 it evokes this on every design choice it makes, on every level. So on the other side of the coin, we have um, the, the womb or the vagina or the uterus, which is depicted as, as a place of safety in the movie. So, you know, as uh, Shara pointed out, at the beginning of the movie, there's these, these womb-like sleep pods that open up that have been holding the, the people in comfortable sleep, and it's where they're safe, you know? The danger doesn't begin until they exit the sleep pods. And in similar vein, at the end of the movie, uh, Ripley goes into a sleep pod, and she doesn't, uh, and, that, and that represents her return to a place of safety, you know, to, to the womb, so to speak, symbolically. Um, and similarly, you'll notice that the safe spaces in the movie become progressively smaller and more womb-like. So, you know, the first safe space is outside from outside of the planet to the inside of the Nostromo, to the enclosure of the Nostromo. Then the next uh, place that we go after that becomes unsafe is we go to the shuttle, which is a smaller, more enclosed space. Then after the shuttle becomes unsafe, Ripley retreats to the enclosure of the spacesuit. And then once the alien is finally defeated, Ripley goes into the pod, which is the ultimate womb symbol. Um, and and th there's also um, motherhood is also very positively symbolized in this movie through Ripley um, carrying uh, Jonesy the cat because she puts him in a cat carrier. And at that point, Ripley is symbolically pregnant. She's carrying, she's literally carrying a child with her through the ship. And, and it's her trying to carry that child with her through the ship to the end that 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 symbolizes her journey through motherhood and her survival of these rapey forces that are converging on her um and so 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 that's that's the the five minute breakdown on yeah on how to uh on how to interpret alien through through a framework of rape um and so the way that the way that these this connects on on both the higher and lower levels of the story is that that ultimately um, the corporation, the capitalism of of the movie is villainous and rapacious. You know, it it ultimately represents the characters being forced against their will to go to some place and endure a thing that they didn't want to have to endure that is hugely traumatic for them that they may not survive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's and 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 in the name of greed in the name of selfishness in the name of this faceless kind of of self-interest 
this vicious, faceless self-interest. And in the same, and, and so that's the connection between the Weyland Utani Corporation and the alien. That's what makes them collectively the villain is they're both rapey. You know, the corporation wants to rape you economically and exploit you. And as as part of your uh, exploitation, the, the, the proximate vehicle for this is the form of the alien who symbolizes all the consequences of that rapey stuff that the capitalists are doing already. Yeah, the the original writer, O'Bannon, he actually said that's what this film is about, is rape. Uh, he wanted it all to be about rape, and it's obviously a metaphor, but it's all rape. And um, when the facehugger gets on the guy, um, what O'Bannon said about that was he wanted men to cross their legs in the theater. He wanted men to realize what rape is and what it does. And... Um, it, it, it was even kind of homophobic the way he said it, like a man raping a man so that he can understand this, blah, blah, blah. It's the writers, the way he described it was a little fucked up. Um, but anyway, he's, he really was trying to make people super duper uncomfortable and using rape as a vehicle to do it and to make men cross their legs, if you will. But what's interesting is when they tested the film out on audiences, it was the women who had the most, uh, strongest reaction in the audience to the face hugger and to um, the rape scene and then the child being born scene. So um, I guess he kind of failed. <laughs> Plenty of men that are very uncomfortable with it. Well, I mean, it's certainly not, you know, I don't watch it to relax. Um, so it does make me uncomfortable. Um, and, and to sort of build on some of the things Antonio was saying, even the, the ship um, is all phallic in imagery. Um, the shit, the planet that they land on, there's like huge dicks everywhere. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, I wanted to, you know, suss out all of the, uh, the genital, uh, imagery throughout this film. And there sure is a lot. I mean, there's even some vaginal aspects to the way the face hugger is shaped and designed. Um, so it, it's Giger actually purposely made it look like a vulva. He used actual meat parts of animals to create that effect. And uh, he wanted it to look like a vulva. He wanted the egg to look like a vulva. Um, and Giger is very well known for using a lot of sexual imagery. That's one of the reasons why Ridley Scott and uh, O'Bannon were drawn to his artwork and wanted his input into the film. Um, he is well known for having designed a poster that was put out in a Dead Kennedys album in 1985. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but uh, Giger's poster um, had a lot of dicks going into uh, vulvas in the poster. It's it's a repetitive picture. It's very, very beautiful, but it's one of the biggest controversies because that was one of the first times a record company went to court and they were, they were going to be imprisoned for... Uh, putting this imagery inside uh, in a poster inside of a CD. Um, I think it's uh, Frankenchrist was the name of the, of the CD or the album, I guess. It wasn't a CD back then because <laughs> it was 1985. But um, anyway, like uh, Giger is known for his phallic imagery and that's it's all over the place in this film because of his artwork. And um, if you look at the head of the alien, it's a giant dick. It, it's just a giant fucking dick on his head uh, or her head, I should say. But um it's 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 supposed to be sexual it's supposed to have bodily fluids it's supposed to be rapey um and it's all a giant metaphor for you know 
what is inevitable. We're all going to be destroyed. We're all going to die. And it's probably going to be corporations that lead us there. <laughs> That's yes, my let's, interpretation. Let's run over the phallic imagery associated with the xenomorph and the face hugger specifically. So, so it, I think it starts with the egg. So the egg, despite being a, you know, traditionally associated with feminine symbology, um, this particular egg, it doesn't, it doesn't crack like we expect a regular egg to. It's, it's leathery and it's, it's very elongated in its shape. And the tip opens up and weeps this sort of like pre-ejaculate all over the place. And, and it expels an organism that, that obviously like leaps out. Like this is not the, the face hugger obviously doesn't just kind of crawl out and kind of shrug and take a look. Oh, Hey, Hey dude, how's it going? You want me to bust through your faceplate? I mean, it, it obviously is shooting out the tip, so to speak. Um, and so, so that's how, that, that's where we start. The next is, you know, once the face hugger's on, its fingers are ob obviously, you know, elongated and spidery and, and you know, uh, sort of penile in and of itself. The tail itself is kind of a phallic symbol. It obviously has some sort of proboscis that it puts down the victim's throat, which, of course, is penile. Um, as Shayra observed, the xenomorph's head is a, is a penis, and we see this from the moment, you know, it, it bursts out as a fanged penis, basically. And then, you know, it turns black and it becomes way bigger, but it's it's still basically a fanged penis. And it's a fanged penis that can protrude a mouth, and the mouth, instead of being um, something that, you know, receives objects, it has something that protrudes out. So again, reinforcing the, the sort of phallic imagery of it, and it penetrates you, you know, the, rather than enveloping you like a mouth is nor normally does, this mouth punches outward. Um, and th that actually leads me to, to sort of an interesting question about, about some symbolism in this, which is the, the confluence in this movie between um, its sort of rapey symbolism and its or it has kind of an oral fixation. You know what I mean? Like it, it, and, and to some extent, maybe this is just because you can't actually make it explicitly genital in a Hollywood movie without it being more than R-rated. Maybe that's, maybe it's, maybe the oral uh, fixation of the movie is just a proxy for genital fixation. Um, but it is interesting to me that, you know, the face hugger shoots crap into you through your mouth. Um, Ash puts the newspaper into Ripley's mouth. You know, the alien's most frequently used phallic substitute is its second mouth. Um, so I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that this is just, uh, to evoke they have know, to do it by other means or, or is there something else at work here? They had to do it that way. Giger had a lot of, um, a lot of designs that the executives had to pull. And actually by the end of the making of alien, uh, he had become extraordinarily depressed, had hated himself and felt like this did not, uh, reflect his true work because there was so much censoring of his imagery. Um, and then when Aliens came out, he was just kind of shafted altogether. And um, so it, he he's definitely been not, it, it, he was not properly represented, even though it is absolutely wonderful imagery and I love all the stuff that he created, it, it probably would have been a little bit more racy had he been able to run with this and do what he wanted to do with it. 
how much further do I mean, do you know how much further he was planning on going with this, Shayro? Because there are a lot of dicks in this movie. The the vulva egg was uh the big one. Um because it was supposed to look exactly like a vulva on top and open up, you know, and that's where the face hugger was supposed to come out. And then they made him make it split apart with four pieces. Um, they said that there were about six or seven different countries that would probably um uh, not allow it to be viewed if he would keep that egg in and it was stuff like that that just made him go what wh why the hell am i even fucking doing this like he was really upset about it um and he's he's been kind of shafted in a lot of ways for his work it's very controversial but it's absolutely beautiful um i wish the vulva egg could have survived in and been put in the film i i don't even think it would be that racy today i don't think people would even really care <laughs> that much um today but his work was censored a lot in the 80s in the 90s there were a lot of censorship issues and there's still issues today but um i think we're pushing past a lot of those barriers and it'll be interesting to see what work comes out in the future but i i think he i think he had way too much censorship going on with this film and it's kind of sad yeah on the one hand uh, so the artist in me actually uh, absolutely agrees with you you know i'm a big believer obviously in free speech and in and artists being able to do whatever the fuck they want to do. But I think that part of the way Alien works is that there is a modicum, a modicum of subtlety. Um, there, like this, this is trying, you know, uh, Antonio brought up Jung before, how this is, how the alien is basically a Jungian archetype. And that works, it works because it, taps into a subconscious thing not because i i think that i think that I, even us and 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 uh, audiences in 1979 if if there were just a, even more dicks running around i think that there would be a bit of a problem like oh my god there's a lot of dicks in this movie right right um, there's there's a reason the Japanese hentai is not considered to be like, you know, very effective horror, despite the fact that it is basically alien with more explicitness. And so, um, and so I think that's really, that's really what we're trying to get at here is the reason it works so well is that it's relentless in its references to sexuality, but all of the references are exactly that they're referred. They're not direct. It's, there's no direct sexuality in the movie. It's all there by implication and by symbol and by archetype and that's what makes it so effective exactly that's a that's the point that i was trying to make that there was that there's you need some subtlety in order for this to work uh in the way that it does um and and the referential parts of this film are things that you sort of unpack after the film is over after you you're allowing this film to have its effect on you and after you're you're thinking about it. This certainly is a stone in your shoe movie, as uh, to to quote our beloved Noah. <laughs> so to to focus again on on sort of the archetypical nature of the xenomorph, the archetypical nature of the antagonist. You know, obviously this is one of the most recognizable movie villains of all time. I would say probably easily top five movie villains of all time recognizability. Like you you could you could show an alien in Japan, you could show an alien in Mexico, you could show an alien al almost anywhere in the world. And people will know what it is when they look at it in almost every culture. It's it's an incredibly pervasive symbol that has that has um, proven really resilient 
and obviously come back in a million different franchised forms which speak to to the popularity of its of its basic symbology so i want to kind of dig into a little bit more about about what makes the alien such an archetypical monster and one of the things i'd like to argue is that is that the alien um succeeds in being in being an archetype of the things that we dread um in part because it is the, they they again try to make it wholly other there's an inversion of humanity that they attempt to present with the alien. And so, um, for example, um, where, where humans are social beings, the alien is a solitary being. You know, despite the fact that there are all these eggs or whatever, the alien's objective is not to go hatch all the other eggs. The alien's objective is just to kill all the rest of you. That's pretty much what it's there for. It's not a social being. It's not there to, to breed a bunch more of itself. It's not there to talk it's not there to reason it's just there to kill so it's so so it's it's silent and implacable and antisocial it's it's a perfectly psychopathic entity it's silent whereas humans are linguistic entities you know it doesn't it barely makes any sound at all the sounds that it do make are basically kind of like hisses and chitters and and there's no indication that it has any kind of language or any interest in anything that we would consider to be communication um Whereas humans are very visual and tactile creatures, this is not a this is not a an animal that looks like you could touch it. It's not. It doesn't look like it's particularly cuddly. It doesn't look like you could shake its hand, um, and it doesn't have any normal physical senses. Like its 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 skin doesn't look like skin. It looks like it's wearing its skeleton on the outside, as opposed to us, where the bones are at the core of our body. The core of our body is the outside of its body. Um, where we have ears, it doesn't have ears. Where we have eyes, it doesn't have eyes. Where we have a nose, it doesn't have a nose. It doesn't have any physical senses that we know. Where we have a tongue, it doesn't have a tongue. So it doesn't have any physical physical senses that we that we can relate to. It is it is as wholly other from us as possible. And so to that end, I actually want to ask a question of is this is this a, is this an okay thing? Should we should we be a little bit more um, should we be a little bit more uh, equivocal about the alien's status as a villain? Should we try to interpret it in a more sympathetic way? Precisely because what the alien really represents is the other, the capital O other at the end of the day. Um, and that's really what gives it its frightening quality. It's not merely that it's about rape and sexual assault and violence and so on. It's that the thing that's coming after you is other, is the other, you know? And and there there's, there's a... A bunch of elements in the film obviously that reinforce its otherness that i just went over but it's also i think telling that the film has these sort of capitalist imperialist elements and also features a cast where there's only one minority character there's no other characters who are asian there's no characters who are uh, hispanic um the one black character it can be argued is a fairly tokenistic black character you know he's like an engineer who's kind of jive talking and saucy and you know, keeps everybody's morale up with his cheerfulness. And, you know, he's, he's sort of a stereotypical black character. And so I think it's fair to ask of this movie, particularly given other Ridley Scott movies. Again, you know, it's important to interpret this in the context of Ridley Scott's wider work. Ridley Scott's work tends to be pretty, pretty white for the most part and pretty white bread for the most part. And so is Alien um, race, a racially problematic movie? Is it is it depicting the other as as the enemy in too effective of a way such that it's going to increase our likelihood of interpreting others in our lives 
in a similarly threatening context? Uh, two things. So as far as the alien is concerned, um, that came from Giger well before he had even read the script or known anything about the film. Uh, he'd already uh, drawn up art that they looked at and said, we want this to be our alien, we want this to be our creature. Um, and that artwork that he had done, he had done while doing LSD. And when O'Bannon had been talking to him about the artwork, um, Giger had said that the things inside of us are darker than anything out there and that we really are battling the demons within us. So it is a representation of the monsters within us, which is pretty much what every horror movie monster is. It's something within us that is dark and scary and that we need to wrestle with. Um, as far as the tokenism, once again, you can thank the executives for that because there was not uh, this uh, tokenism or uh, race or gender even put forth in the original script that was put forth by the executives. They like to have certain kinds of characters put in. And the other girl, I forgot her name, she was supposed to be an Asian character, but the actress was so amazing that they they put her in, in play there. Um, so there, there was supposed to be an Asian crew member, but uh, did not happen. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of times when people are trying to write characters, they put gender and race as part of the characteristic of the character. That is a pretty common thing that people do with character writing. It's kind of lame, but it is something that's done, and and we need to start writing characters maybe more so on what they do, what what makes them interesting. Um, but I, it's just something that's going to happen, though. You know, it the it's just it's just the way a lot of people do writing. I don't know why. I, I, is it whitewashed? I don't know. I I don't know that it's whitewashed. Um, I think laziness is what I would attribute it to. Um, rather than writing a character, you write a stereotype. I think, well, given some of the things that Shara, the that Shara's pointing out, it's hard to argue that this is an intentionally uh, racist or tokenist or otherist film. But I guess the question then becomes, does this film perform a racist, otherist, tokenist, rhetorical function within uh, its viewership. And I I normally look at films, I, I normally try to look at films with, the, with that in mind, with that idea that, okay, so I'm going into a film, I'm gonna look out for cultural stereotypes or racism and I'm gonna, point out that racism or, or cultural stereotypes when I see it, and I'm gonna flip off the movie as soon as I find racism or, or sexism or otherism in any, any, uh, any form. And I didn't, this, there, there wasn't anything about this film that really got my hackles up. Um, although now that you pointed out, some of the uh, Parker's dialogue does, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, so for me, this film doesn't perform that rhetorical function, but I can imagine somebody inclined to believe the other as a as a uh, a threat, de facto threat. I can imagine somebody who believes the other as a de facto threat to be able to read this film in that way. Um, that said this film is more about 
some of the things that we were articulating earlier, um, the the rapey aspects of this film seem to to me to be doing a service by trying to make men uncomfortable. That is that that's doing that's doing the God's work, as it were, uh, when we when we talk about uh, uh, social issues like this. At least that's how I'm thinking of it. I, I mean, I, maybe I'm not answering your question in in the way that you wanted it answered, Antonio. Well, um, I think actually Shara Shara may have hit on a really interesting way of interpreting it, and that is that um, that the alien rather than being interpreted as an externalized other precisely because it has to use us in order to make itself and, you know it, it is product in some sense of us and it's a product of us in multiple senses you know in a narrative sense the alien threat is our is a product of us because we sent people out there we stepped foot on there we poked our nose in the pandora's box where it didn't belong um but but it's also you know literally created by us you know it comes out of our out of our own body and so in that sense rather than in rather than I, I can see I can see the reading of it being sort of anti-tribalist or or anti um, otherist but in in that sense I think it's more a reflection of of ourselves it's more it's more us against the unman you know against the inversion of human traits and human qualities. It's not, it's not the other that is from without us. It's the other that exists at our hearts. And that's what makes it implacable is precisely that is precisely that, that ultimately um, you can't, you, you're fighting yourself in some sense, you're, you're fighting a, a human essence in order to, to try and defeat this creature. And that's precisely what gives it its, its, unerring ability to to win in every direct confrontation in that sense this film sort of becomes a a celebration of the human rather than a anti-otherist political piece yeah yes it becomes it becomes a a, a sort of a a personal story of triumph over the evil within almost you know of of humanity and and again in this in this sense maybe we can come back to the the notion of the will to power so let's go back to um to scott's other work and compare some of the other protagonists because i think that there are some favorable comparisons to be made with the ripley character that suggest that 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 maybe at core in this movie there's there's sort of a will to power you know so so if we're taking the reading of alien that alien is that the alien is about sort of a will to power, you know, where where Ripley survives at the end because because she has you know adopted the appropriately Nietzschean qualities, um, while also not abandoning the nurturing feminine qualities that that define her humanity against the rapiness of the alien, and so um, you know because because she you know she understands that you know you have to keep the quarantine procedure, but she also understands that the company is not you know, looking in your best interest. Um, at, at the same time as she um, is in the Nostromo, she's a child of, of mother, to, so to speak. But she recognizes in the end that um, mother is complicit in the abuse. And so she actually yells at, at the end of the movie, you bitch, to mother, and goes away and destroys her, symbolically kills her, her mother, who was, 
who permit who allowed the evil into the fold and permitted the abuse to be perpetrated. Um, and so, so there's a lot of so there's a lot of these like overcoming will to power, surmounting sorts of themes in here. And these are very similar, I think, to to themes that you can find in other Ridley Scott movies. For example, um, the the one that strikes me as the closest would be the character of Maximus in Gladiator, where where this is a this is somebody who is sort of very will to power. You know, after he's betrayed and cast down, and he reaches the absolute lowest station in life, and and he has purpose, and it's not necessarily even to stay alive to survive. It's it's to 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 fulfill his moral will, and and he is able to survive and and hold himself together until he until he fulfills his sort of glorious destiny to to shape Rome in a positive way, um, and you see this also in the character of Balian in Kingdom of Heaven, I would say. So there's there's kind of an echo in previous in in pre not previous in uh, successive Ridley Scott works. Um, of this sort of character who who is um, sort of this this loner who bucks the bucks both the collective will of his peers because he's smarter than they are and the imposed will of the hierarchy because they don't have his best interests at heart and he eventually manages to to overcome through you know basically through basically will through basically will to power um, in in a sort of a secular a secular um, story of redemption, you know, of self-actualization. And so I think the Ripley character can be cast as this if we view the alien as the evil within. You know, Ripley eventually throws the evil within out of her and gets it far behind her and is on her way with her cat at the end of the movie. So I don't know, what do you guys, what do you guys think of that particular interpretation? Um, yeah, I like it. I. I, I also see it a little bit in Deckard in Blade Runner. Um, there is that sense of, uh, you know, he's bucking. At, by the end of it, he sort of bucks the societal point of view about the relationship between uh, humans, as he, as Deckard believes himself to be, um, and and replicants. Um, which is a theme that gets interestingly picked up in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It's, it's uh, earlier in the conversation. I was sort of noting to myself that Denis Villeneuve does a better job of writing a Ridley Scott sequel than Ridley Scott does of uh, of his own films. And and I also, I, as you were talking, I, I wondered. Uh, going back to the theme of imperialism, um, he did a Columbus movie, 1492 Conquest of Paradise. I had to look up the year 1992, in which Columbus is portrayed as as this, you know, as he was, raper of the new land, rapist of the new land, imperialist, um, and and so that seems to reflect some of the uh, the the imperialist uh, hypotheses that we were talking about earlier um yeah i mean i never really thought about ridley scott as a nietzschean director but the more and more i think about it even delman louise and uh matchstick men there are some some uber mensches in his character catalog and i think it's it's telling in this context that um ridley scott for example with gladiator ridley scott's a secular individual and with gladiator for example he explicitly stated his purpose was to set forth a a secular 
heroic character, a non a, a, a heroic character who would exist outside the standard expectations of Christian moral ethos. And um, and I think that again, sort of if you if you project this attitude retrospectively onto his other work, I think you can see you can see the germinations of it at various points, including you know in the Ripley character, you know very obviously, um, where you know again she faces her demons, she literally faces her demons and conquers them and and goes off into the into the stars to maybe die, maybe not, but the point is that she faced her demons and beat them. There's even uh, going back to some of the other themes that we were talking about uh, with reason, how how reason becomes Ripley's um, distinguishing characteristic and humanity's thing, distinguishing characteristic vis-a-vis -vis the alien. Um, Ridley Scott also directed The Martian a few years ago, in which which uh, popularized the phrase "I'm going to science the shit out of this," uh, and 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 even that the entire action of that film, the man versus nature, nature of course, in in that case being Mars, uh, was all about how our reason is the th or Watney's reason specifically is the thing that keeps him alive, and one of the interesting changes from book to film was that they have this fantastic, the last paragraph of the book is probably my favorite paragraph in, in the entire novel, where they talk about how uh, the, the novel says, people are motivated to care about each other. We're motivated to help somebody out. The film changes that to um, the way you, survive Mars is you just solve the next math problem. You just, it's, it's all reason in the film, but in the book, it's because people are compassionate. And vis-a-vis -vis some of the conversations that we've had tonight about Alien, it seems that, that that's a telling change uh, in, the, uh, in the context of Ridley Scott's other work. Um. Unless y'all have any more comments on what we've already addressed, I'd like to cover a few miscellaneous elements that we didn't uh, cover specifically that didn't seem to slot into any of the stuff we were talking earlier. Yeah, then... uh, I just wanted to say the the as my my viewpoint on the whole um, you know Ubermensch and all that. I actually felt like it was a very simple thing going on, and it it starts in the very beginning. And there's a reason why I think they focused on it so much, where you have. Uh, mom and dad essentially having a conversation. Uh, it's, it just is a bunch of words right, writing on the screen, but it's aimed at each other. You know, you have mother of the ship having a conversation with the corporation, uh, sending out that message that these that this crew is expendable. And it, it did reflect a lot um, of the fable of uh, Hansel and Gretel, where the parents are like, all right, we're, we're going to have to just leave them out in this forest. Uh, fuck our kids. Uh, <laughs> it's each man for himself. Uh, we we can't we can't deal with these uh, people. We, we, they're expendable. Blah blah blah. But um, it, it kind of reminded me of that, and I feel like that is a huge aspect of of the film is that the two the two entities that are supposed to be caring about them the most are actually not going to. And um, and I and I think that has a lot to do with why the rape happens <laughs> from the alien. You know um, these these negligent parents uh, leaving their child exposed to something very dangerous that could hurt them. And, um, and I, it, it just something I could relate to, you know, <laughs> I can, I can relate to that aspect of the film. I don't know if other people have interpreted it that way, 
but that I feel like it's a little bit more close to home and that's why they use a lot of the mom and dad kind of aspects to it. That's actually a really good observation, Shayra, because there's a sense in which if you if you really interpret the whole film in light of that one framing that you just provided, um, there's really a sense in which the movie is actually kind of about parents who are pimping their children out, which is like really awful, horrible stuff, and is all covered via allusion in the movie. Um, but that's really kind of the bottom line. And of course, in that light, it would be no surprise that the story is a horrific one. And that the final, not final, but one of the penultimate resolutions of that is the destruction of the mother and the rejection of the mother, uh, calling her a bitch and whatnot. So, so what about your, uh, your miscellaneous? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So a couple of things that I really wanted to, to go over. The first thing is just a visual element in the film that I thought was a really cool thing. And that is the use of blood in the film. The uh, visual design of the film almost completely omits the color red from every every set, every uniform, every item, every prop, every everything. It, there's almost nothing in this whole movie is red, and there's a lot of stuff that is very light colored or white. And this is, you know, delib a deliberate choice, obviously, in the palette to evoke the the messiness and the nastiness and the shock value of the blood, and um, it's. Uh, it's something that you also see used in a couple other movies. The one that um, comes to my mind most prominently is Jaws. Uh, Spielberg, likewise, in Jaws, made the decision to almost completely uh, obviate the use of the color red, to deliberately step away from the color red in almost all the shots, such that when the blood came, it would be obvious that, that, that it was there and all attention would be drawn to it because it's a color that you see so uncommonly in the rest of the film. So I just thought that was a really great little visual element that that the film uses. And this kind of goes back to what Jim was saying earlier about how um, one of the things about this film is that it's um, it has some editing tricks that make it an obvious sign of an older film. I feel like the the use of the color palette is something that you would see more commonly in older films as a way to highlight the blood. And that in the modern era, the way they'd highlight the blood would be to like throw some extra CG on it in some way or put it in a weird camera angle or what have you. Um, and so, you know, while, while I think Jim intended um, the, the observation that it has a lot of like editing tricks that, that sort of evince its age as a film, I think Jim intended that as kind of a critique of it as, as the film sort of shows its age in some ways. But honestly, I think there's a number of ways in which this movie, um, um, keeps traditions that I think are better kept. And I think, for example, one of the aspects would be in the minimalism of the way that they show the villain. Um, you would definitely see a full body shot of that alien, 360 degrees, slow motion, running all over the place if this movie were made today. And I think that that substantially diminishes the menace of the villain um, in this particular kind of format. And and the the alien is used minimalistically enough in this movie that I, that I feel like even though when you actually get to see the alien, it's pretty dopey. Like if it, when you see it in full motion, it's kind of rubbery and floppy and it really is not all that menacing to the modern eye, especially now that we're used to everything being, you know, animated via CG. So it, it definitely looks like a dude in a rubber suit at a couple points. Um, but it's still a 
terrifying ent uh, entity even today. And it, I think that's because they show less is more. They let the, the imagination fill in details maximally. So while Jim, I think you intended it as a criticism, I think there's certainly a, a poll of this particular, uh, of that particular critique, which you can sort of flip around and say, you know, there are a lot of movies that could, they could learn from the minimalism imposed by the technological constraints this movie was working with. Yeah, I mean, I was, I did mean it as a criticism, but that's, a, I meant it because there were moments when I could sort of see the thumb in the frame. Um, you know, when I, when I watch a film, I want to completely suspend all disbelief, and I, of course I can never do that, but the, I, there were moments when I was like, ah, they didn't have that shot, so they did this trick and that. So I did mean it as a criticism. And I, But to your point, I think they did remake this film today. They called it Alien Covenant, because if you track the plot of Alien Covenant, it is essentially the plot of Alien with... Uh, so the, like, the main plot is the same plot as Alien, there's a B plot, which is Ridley Scott's intro to philosophy lecture on the nature of man. And so I, I, I don't want to get off on a sort of a, a tangent comparing one to the other. And I don't want this to sort of be a review of Alien Covenant. But you see the way they would do Alien today is they would have, as I called it earlier, the money shot of the alien on the ship. And you'd see the full 360 and you'd see all kinds of... Uh, uh, all kinds of um, CGI that's that's added to the film in order to uh, to make it more visually uh, more visually appealing to a modern audience. That said, everything that you're talking about the the color palette and on and on and on, I don't see those as 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 negatives to the film. It's more sort of micro scenes. Um, within the film that I'd sort of have to, like, we'd have to watch it together and be like, see, they didn't have that shot. That's why they cut to an extreme close-up and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I, I, same type of thing, but different. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, my main point there was just to emphasize how um, how it's often the limitations of a, prod, of, of a medium that are what cause us to be innovative within that medium. And I think Alien is a wonderful example of the limitations of making a movie in 1978-79 um, and being forced to work within those limitations to produce an effective piece of art. Right. Alien is a great, great example of that. Um, yeah, so I agree. In, in, that, in that same vein, um, something that I think we could probably spend a whole hour talking about if we wanted to, but, but we won't. Um, is that Alien has very effective sound design. And the reason Alien has very effective sound design and soundtrack design is because you almost don't notice it's there. And that's how you know it is super, super good and super, super on point. Um, the, the sound design is, uh, you, you know, industrial, basically. You know, there's low rumblings and clanks and drips. Um, and the Alien itself, again, is voiced in, a, in very much of an inversion kind of way. You know, it makes kind of a chittering noise that that is uh, insect-like, but at the same time, its resonance has kind of been played around with to hollow it out and give it this inhuman, almost um, almost radio frequency-like 
uh, sound to it, sort of like a menacing version of a humpback whale call almost. Um, and, uh, and likewise, the soundtrack is uh, extremely minimalistic. Um, it's almost all synthetic, if not all synthetic, I believe. Um, and that, again, gives you the sort of futuristic tone of it, as well as, you know, in the 80s, as an 80s movie, basically, um, now being very retro to us, because, you know, we hear these, like, heavy synthesizer tones when, when a sci-fi movie queues up, and it sounds dated to us now. But, of course, at the time, you know, this is what the future was supposed to sound like. Um, and, uh, and I think, it, it's again, it's very ambient. It's very minimalistic. It's in the background. It doesn't hit you in the face. You're not going to be humming any bars of it when you walk out of the theater. And that's precisely why it's a really good soundtrack. Um, so before we move on to the next thing, any comment from either of you on the sound design or the soundtrack? I it's fantastic. It's great. <laughs> I don't know. As soon as this movie ended this afternoon, I said to myself, Antonio is going to bring up the sound design. I knew it for a fact that you were going to talk about it. Yes, I, I agree with what you're saying. So, I actually like the uh, older sounds, and um, it's one of the reasons why I liked the new Blade Runner. They used a lot of the old, timey sounds to keep it in with that world, and uh, I, I like that Ridley Scott did that. Um, you can have a modern movie now with some of the older elements and make it look really good. I, honestly, I think this is one of the reasons why people like Stranger Things. Um, it's it's a show that has some nostalgia to it, but can still you could tell that they're using technology from today to make it look awesome too. Um, and, and I think there's something to say about leaving a little bit of that sci-fi nostalgia in there. Um, it, it's not that it was not that long ago, <laughs> you know. But I, I think it holds up just in in the fact that he's continued, Scott has continued in his work to show the old timey stuff being in the future still, so. We're showing our age, Shayra. <laughs> it hey, was 38, 39 year, years ago. The year I was born, the, the, the personal computer was person of the year for Time Magazine and it's <laughs> green screened computer, so. <laughs> I mean, actually in your 30s. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so right. I'm, I'm actually in my 30s. It says that on my shirt. Right. Um, actually, I wanted to talk about um, you guys were talking about the minimalistic parts of it. Um, I actually think it has something more so to do with going back to the original um, suspense horror that Hitchcock, uh, he, he had like a, a certain process to how you're supposed to get scared. And I think um, this is one of the reasons why Alien is so fucking fantastic compared to uh, a lot of the garbage that comes out today. Not saying that all of the stuff that comes out today is bad, but um, they've forgotten this element and uh, Hitchcock talked about the difference between surprise and suspense. And so um, he used an analogy of like, you have two people sitting at a table and a bomb goes off and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, uh, what, what the hell just happened? Um, it makes you jump, you get scared, but then you're just kind of like, well, whatever. Well, Hitchcock didn't like the surprises. He liked the suspense. So you have like 15 minutes working up to this where there's all these different shots of you know the bomb is under the table and you know these people are going to explode and, and the audience is aware, but the people are not aware and you're scared and you're wondering what's going to happen and you build and build and build and build till boom. And then, and then there's where the minimalism part comes in too. You don't show everything. You, you, you may even like go off camera a little bit. You leave a little bit to the imagination because what goes on up here 
is way more fucked up than what you can show on the screen at times. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of film that knew that leaving stuff to the imagination added more to it. And Alien is so good at this. I mean, uh, it, today, if you were gonna show the scene where, um, I forgot what the name of the guy was, but he was looking for the cat and he comes across the, the skin on the ground. Other movies today would probably show it coming out of its skin and getting all big and do a scary monster thing and then shoot, shoot to him and then you'd like, oh, he's gonna get attacked by a bigger monster. But they didn't do that. They just show that there's just a little bit of skin and he's looking around like, what the hell? Your imagination creates something way more fucked up and way more uh, interesting to build that anticipation and that suspense. You don't need it to be these big shock moments all the time. You slowly build to this boom and it and it's fantastic when the boom happens. It, it's it's like foreplay. <laughs> we yes. need foreplay in our horror again. There's, well, there's, there's sort of an oppressive sense of potential energy, I guess is how I would describe, describe the suspense, is this building of this oppressive sense of potential energy that sort of hangs over the scene and hangs over the scene and hangs over the scene until finally we get some kind of resolution. So this actually brings up a really interesting quality of the film that I think kind of flies under the radar for a lot of people, which is how the movie is kind of epistemologically oppressive. It, it encourages the viewer to ask very few questions and, and, and sort of has an ethic even of discouraging curiosity from, from my reading of the film. So think about what happens whenever you look into, whenever you investigate um, something in this movie. So you investigate the derelict to begin with. And that's obviously a terrible idea because you're going to get face huggers, you're going to get aliens, etc. Um, you know, you touch the egg, out comes the face hugger. You you look at the face hugger. You know, you try to you try to tweak its joint. It throttles cane harder. You try to cut it open. It bleeds acid. Um, you know, you follow the cat and are wondering where the cat is. Well, maybe there's going to be an alien and it's going to suck you up into the ceiling and kill you. Um, and uh, and even for example, the the scene where Ash assaults Ripley, you know, Ripley goes into Mother to learn something. She's trying, she's curious, she's trying to acquire knowledge, and and she has to pay a price to acquire that knowledge. She goes in, she she gets the information she was looking for, and as soon as she gets the information she was looking for, she's violently assaulted and nearly killed. And that's kind of almost the, the price that this knowledge costs her. Um, in the same way that you know the curiosity, Brett's curiosity gets him killed. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so on. So there's, there's an element in this movie where curiosity is depicted as like a bad thing. If you ask a question, if you follow up something, if you look around that corner, then something terrible is going to happen to you. And so I think that, 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 that adds to the film's, um, minimalism because it, it deliberately puts the viewer in a frame of mind where, where trying to inquire is going to lead to the alien coming and raping you and killing you. And so you're you're actively encouraged to adopt a frame for the for the narrative sake of the movie of kind of blinders where you're just following following them around the characters and trying to figure out what's going to happen next without actually asking too many questions about the wider context because the film is subconsciously cueing you that if you ask those questions that's what's that's when it's going to pop out and get you. That's actually a common trope within most horror films, right? I mean, we we talked about this as a slasher film in its structure and its in its generic conception, but 
in most cases, the 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 fact that the the person goes off alone, the character goes off alone. They they investigate the sound. They do the they do anything to anytime they indulge their curiosity. It is usually a time when I'm screaming at the screen, "You're an idiot! Stop it!" And I. Granted, I did that a lot less in this film. The the films the characters in this film are a lot less stupid than characters in other horror films. Although you know we've got we've got our doozies. Um, the, other, um, the other thing, actually, before before you continue, the other element that is also interesting because see, um, there's a lot of films, as you said, there's a lot of horror films where you ask where you say to yourself, "Oh God, don't do that." That you know that kind of curiosity is stupid. Um, on the other hand, though, as you pointed out, in Alien, there's a little bit less of that. There, most most of the curiosity is something that that under normal circumstances would be a reasonable kind of curiosity. You know, it's not a dopey curiosity. You know, if you find an alien signal, it is probably worth checking it out. You know, if the cat goes around the corner and you're looking for it, it's probably worth going around the corner to try and find it. You know, if now you're in command of the ship and Mother has some information, you're probably going to go, you know, try and get it out of Mother. So all of these things make make a lot more contextual sense than they do in a lot of horror movies. And that's kind of why why I view curiosity as as having a more sinister bent in this movie, even than most horror um, and this is particularly kind of personified in the character of Ash for me. And that is that, he, you know, he has this fascination with the Xenomorph. He allows it through the airlock and and he doesn't at any point really express any any empathy with the crew. At no point does he does he express that he, you know, is really sorry for the crew to die or, or, or what have you. He, he more just kind of like wishes them luck in facing this incredibly fascinating creature. And, and, you know, he's accused of admiring it. And, and he says that he admires its purity. You know, he has a desire to behold it in its prime, primal purity. He has sort of a fascination with it that is a type of curiosity. You know, he wants to know what this primal, pure of essence being is like in, in its, in, you, know, you know, when it's unleashed into an environment with which he's familiar. Um, and so he kind of embodies this, the sinister nature of curiosity in the movie. The notion that, that, that wondering too much actually corrupts you to the point where you become sadistic and psychopathic and villainous. I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I, and you're, but it goes to a certain point, right? There's, uh, there's a moment in the film... Uh, I think it's end of the first act, beginning of the second act, when Tom Skerritt says, enough of this curiosity, we're going to kill the motherfucker. Um, not in those words, but there's a, there's a turn uh, in which the characters decide, okay, enough being curious about this, kill John Hurt, and John Hurt should never fucking die because uh, he's a national treasure and... Rest in peace, John Hearn. Um, but the there's but there's a dramatic turn when it comes to curiosity for every character except for Ash. I think you're right there, where he and, and he explicitly says, um, "I wish you luck" before they uh, disconnect him and burn the shit out of him. Now, in terms of Ash, he also says, and and I guess uh, 
I'll ask this question, and then this will be the last question. You guys say whatever else you want to say about the movie, and then then we'll wrap up. So this is this is the last and maybe maybe most provocative question is, um, you know, Ash says when when he's confronted with the the fact that he kind of likes the alien that he has that he has a sympathy for the alien that he almost doesn't for the crew. Um, Ash's response is, you know, I admire its purity. And so my question would be, um, what do you guys think of this notion? Should should we admire the xenomorph's purity? Is this is this a creature? For which we should have purely loathing, or can we look at this creature in a sympathetic light, or even a light where where we find it attractive? And I guess this digs really deep at, at you know the roots of of the appeal of horror as well, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. Now, see when we cast the the xenomorph as a sort of indigenous people that our imperialist tendencies have have invaded its area and and tried to co-opt it for our corporations then of course I'm I'm on the side of the xenomorph but I I think it's also important to point out the context of that scene ash is a non-human character admiring the uh, simplicity and purity of a non-human entity. And in that sense, he doesn't have the intellectual, emotional, or philosophical wherewithal to make such a decision. I don't admire the alien, the, the xenomorph's purity, because the xenomorph's purity is... is is anti-human as we've been establishing over the past couple hours. It's, it's the other, it's the opposite of us. So the idea that Ash uh, admires it, I understand that from the, uh, from the point of view of that character, but what I don't, but I can't sympathize with that because Ash has the incapability to experience or understand that which is, uh, beautiful but flawed um sublime yet yet simple about what it is to be human and and as we've been establishing this is a film that that celebrates what is human and and doesn't i think it's it's no surprise that two of the villains or two of the antagonists in this in this film are non-human characters uh, Ash, who who betrays the crew, and the Xenomorph, who obviously fucking kills the crew, um, it, and it, you know, looking at it in in the through the lens of James Cameron's Aliens, where he reverses that and makes Bishop this this human character, it sort of it it muddies the waters a bit. But viewing Alien just as this as a singular uh, work of art, I. I don't think we should admire its purity. I don't think we should admire its simplicity because what is human and what is at, what is admirable about being human is our complexity, our our ability to um, do the right thing, uh, go after the cat when really fuck the cat. Like what? Just stay in the shuttle, wait for your friends to get there, and who gives a shit about Jonesy? But the the 
but Ripley goes after the cat because she's motivated by a sense of human compassion. Um, and that's why I, I sort of say no to the to the question. But Shera, I, I wonder, you always have a different take than, uh, than I would expect. So I sort of wonder where you'd go on this one. I mean, I think with, I think with the alien, it's not necessarily that she wants to kill them. Um, I, I do take the director's cut version to heart. I think she's maybe an other, but she's trying to bring them over to her side to be a part of what she is. Uh, they literally start turning into them. Um, and I think that could be a huge metaphor for when people are battling it out against each other. Um, probably the best way to win is to <laughs> bring them over to your side. Uh, and I mean, that's pretty much any dialogue you have. You're wanting to convince and persuade that you're actually with me. You're, you're in agreement with me. You're with me. So um, I, I don't know that it was about death, but I, I know that it's been kind of transformed into, uh, I guess they were killed, but I take on the idea that it was an argument and the alien was winning. <laughs> yeah. So... As I said, you have a different point of view than I do. <laughs> I think it's a lot about dialogue. I mean, honestly, it was a miscommunication happening almost all throughout the film. It's about miscommunication and, and the problem of dialogue and uh, being able to empathize or not empathize with people, um, to not understand where people are coming from. Uh, there's also another scene in the director's cut that they took out that uh, has the other female crew member smack the shit out of Ripley for not letting them in originally. Uh, so she, she was very, very angry and upset. And that was a, a very pleasing moment when you think that Ripley is acting kind of icy and, and unempathetic. That slap makes you go, yeah, she deserved it. She deserved to get smacked for that. How dare she not care about others? But we find out later that it wasn't Ash that was being empathetic and loving. It was actually Ripley being smart and that actually was okay. Um, and it turns those things on its head, but it's all about miscommunications, not understanding motivations, not understanding each other. And uh, and eventually Ripley's just saying, fuck you, I am not going to your side and shoot shoot her right out of the freaking ship, you know? Um, that I'm not even gonna listen to your stuff. She basically uh, blocked her on social media. <laughs> She's this equivalent of blocking on social media. Like, I don't have to hear this shit anymore. See ya. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I saw it more as an argument. <laughs> Sorry. Well, as to the question of, of admiring the creature's uh, purity, um, I, I agree with, uh, with Jim's take that the basic idea of of the the basic idea with with the creature is that it's a non it's non-human and that and that the antagonist throughout the film is is non-human entities you know be it the the alien be it um ash the android be it the whale and yutani corporation um everything non-human in this movie is pitted against the elements that are human and all the human elements that despite their frailty despite their uh, you know, their fragility, their irrationality or whatever, they're all ultimately good guys. We're all ultimately pulling for everybody who dies. We don't, we don't really want anybody who dies to, we're not really happy to see anybody who dies die. 
um, and and uh, and we sort of empathize with their suffering. And so um, I think we're, we're this is not something we're supposed to admire. This is something that inhuman things are supposed to admire, um, but not human things. And so I would I would tend to agree with with uh, with Jim's take. Um, the one exception would be just that I would say, in an archetypical sense, I do admire the simplicity because because the 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 xenomorph is a manifestation of our darkness. You know, it comes from within us, and it is it is our inversion. It is it is it is the it is us turned inside out into everything that we fear, and so. Um, while that's not something that can be, that, that's really, that, that admits admiration, um, you can certainly view it and stare in wonder at the, the starkness of its archetypicality. And that I think is really the, the visceral reaction that most people have to the xenomorph. You know, the first time that anybody sees alien, I think the visceral reaction everyone has to the xenomorph is to sort of stand in awe of the degree to which it perfectly exemplifies that inversion of humanity into non-humanity, into unmanity. Um, so, um, so in that sense, I would certainly, I, I, so I would agree with Jim, but in that sense, I would certainly say I admire, I admire the, the, while I don't admire the inhumanity of the xenomorph, I admire the the xenomorph as an avatar of inhumanity. Um, and so, with that, let's uh, let's get to the closing. So, let's start with Shayra. What did you think about the movie? How much did it scare you? And give us a one to ten rating on what you thought of the movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a soapbox moment and then go into that. Um, so. Uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit more in detail about the whole um, suspense versus surprise thing. Um, so O'Bannon, at the beginning of his script, when the original Alien skip script, um, it was posted on the, it, the, he put it on the DVD. You can actually read his script on 2003. And he had an opening uh, where he wrote about the script. And um, I just wanted to read something that he had put down as to why he wrote this film. He said, uh, to frighten an audience, I knew that I must frighten myself. Fake fear doesn't work. Audience sometimes cheer slasher films because they are so badly done, brutal without being terrifying. The filmmakers have failed to penetrate the audience's defenses. Their ironic cheers are not compliments. They are proof that the filmgoers have safely distanced themselves. I decided to eradicate that distance to rip away their safety and leave them quivering and vulnerable in their theater seats. And um, that perfectly sums up why this film is gonna be really highly rated by me. Um, it's not about those cheap jump scares. It's not about the fake fear and leaving you feeling safe. It's supposed to make you feel really uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you leave feeling violated, feeling raped and um, and to make you really question the kinds of attitudes that you have in the world. You know, the kinds of things that are going on in here, the monsters and demons within you, uh, and battle those out, have, have a fight with yourself and figure out what is, is gonna be the ultimate that's gonna win. Um, and as far as fear, I, it, this, once again, it can't be like, oh, I was so scared. You know, I was, I'm not sitting there, you know, like this. 
but I'm feeling uncomfortable the whole time. I'm feeling uh, gross and violated and vulnerable and very fragile. And um, like, I'm basically, uh, what do they say about the big, the big alien is it's ripped over like paper, you know, it's, it made me feel that way. It made me feel very fragile and very uncomfortable. And so if we're going to determine the fear factor and the scary factor on that, um, using that, I, I give it a 10. Made me feel very, very uncomfortable. The whole film makes me uncomfortable um, and, and unnerved. Uh, as far as the film, I, I can't give it a full 10. There are little, you know, quirks and things, but it is definitely one of, I think this might be one of my highest rated films um, to date that we've, that we've uh, analyzed or whatever you want to call it, talked about. Um, I give it a 9.5. It is so superb. Um, one of the things that really is important to me is to have an element with horror, is to have an element from you know, the, the theater of cruelty. I don't know if you guys have studied up on the theater of cruelty at all. Um, it's the idea that you put on the stage just all different kinds of violent, horrible, despicable, disgusting, horrible acts. And it's just filled with it. And it actually leaves you wanting to be a better person. You, it it kind of cleanses your system of the evil that's within you. And it, it's, it's like a colon cleanser, <laughs> but like for the evil inside. And that's, uh, I think this film perfectly goes in with the theater of cruelty, the the idea that this is going to cleanse you of all your evil just by watching something really truly horrible and disgusting. Um, so I, I love it. I think it's a fantastic film. And uh, it, uh, yeah, 9.5, that's really high for me. So whoever's next. Well, I'm also going to be pretty high on this as well. Although I think in my memory it was, it was like a full, probably nine, nine point five. But watching it again earlier today, um, seeing—I I don't know—I I, there were a few moments where I could sort of see the thumb in the frame, and that—that that was it's fine. I mean, that's that's you know, this film is is good enough so that I can I ignore those those things. Like. The fact that we're able to have a substantive two and two hour and thirteen minute conversation on this film and the themes that this film evokes, the fact that it is a a hugely imitated film, there are no horror films that I can think of that are not at least somewhat influenced by Alien. Uh, makes this a a profoundly important and interesting film. Uh, we've talked about you know themes of sexual assault, uh, uh, Nietzschean themes, and I I suspect that we can go even further if we had all night. But uh, sadly, we have lives to live. Um, so for me, uh, it left me unsettled. As I've said before, I don't really get scared by films. Um, so I'm going to go on a seven on the fear factor and an eight uh, overall. I really enjoyed this film. I, I like it. It's a four star film for me. And uh, uh, one of the, uh, one of the masterpieces of the horror genre. So I, uh, I highly, uh, Antonio, I'm throwing it over to you. Yeah. Um, 
I certainly agree that this is one of the masterworks of horror cinema and of sci-fi. And um, speaking as a gamer, I can say that this film has influenced virtually every portrayal of space um, military life and of um, aliens, um, particularly of the more insectoid type that, that you can see in pretty much any video game media depiction. Um, from the Zerg to the Tyranids in Warhammer 40k to, I mean, the, you can just go straight on down the list. There's there's all kinds of stuff that that throws back to the um, that throws back to the Xenomorph and throws back to Alien, both thematically and in a really direct, like visual ripoff kind of way. This this film was visually incredibly influential. Um, and thematically incredibly influential as well. You see a huge uptick in stories, in, in sci-fi stories, like in games as well, about, you know, infestations and, um, you know, uh, entities that, that have adaptability and, and mutate in, and have this sort of chitinous uh, skeletal look to them. Um, it's just a tremendously influential movie, top to bottom, um, and it's a tremendous, and it's because it's deserved, you know, the, the, the technical excellence of the film speaks for itself. It holds up very well, um, almost 40 years later. Um, and, uh, really it's almost a perfect horror movie. There's very few ways in which it could be, could be improved. As Jim said, there's a couple tiny ways, like for example, some of the ways in which the crew is particularly dumb, you know, and the couple elements where you can sort of see the, the thumb on the scale to, you know, frame things a little bit differently where they didn't have the shot and so on. Um, those certainly exist and they drag the movie down, I guess, a tiny bit, but they really don't detract from the overall enjoyability of the movie. And I have very little doubt that this is going to continue to be a movie that is taught in film school and outside of film school for generations to come. There's, there's this movie, this movie will continue to influence audiences for, for decades past us. And so for that, for that, and just the fact that it's a fucking great movie, it's, it's very intense, it's very unsettling. The imagery is iconic and stays with you forever. You'll never forget what the alien looks like, you know? Um, I give that a 9.5 out of 10. So that's also going to be one of my highest rated movies as well. Um, so uh, anything else that y'all want to add before we wrap up here about, about Alien, about, um, you know, the, the sequels, Ridley Scott, uh, the nature of fear, any of that, any of that good stuff? No, I, I mean, I just wish the sequels didn't happen or it happens better. Um, but so be it, you know, uh, one of the things that hopefully will happen in, in time is that, uh, the sequels will sort of, uh, sink to the bottom and, and future generations will just remember, uh, Ridley Scott's original. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sad to be the lowest of the, uh, the three of us now. I thought that Antonio, usually you go a little bit lower than I do, but unfortunately not this case. So yeah, uh, yeah throw it back over this to you. Really, this one's really almost at the top of my list. You know, there's, there's almost no, there's, um, if, if I could take one horror movie to a desert Island and watch it, and I and I knew there were going to be other people there, and I wanted them to be able to enjoy a horror movie too. Would probably be Alien. It's it's pretty much the total package. It contains a little bit for almost everybody. It contains some action. It contains a couple little sexy moments. 
that's got all kinds of visual stuff to feast on. It's got all kinds of philosophical themes to feast on. It's just, it's, it's a great onion of a movie that you can peel away almost endlessly. So um, with that, thanks for watching everybody. This has been, it's been great hanging with you all and uh, ripping this, uh, this particular little movie apart. One might say uh, probing out until we manage to get out of its chest cavity. Maybe we've managed that, maybe not. Um, so we'll see you all next week. Um, since I'm just the guest host, I have absolutely no idea what we have scheduled. It's, it's audition. For, uh, we've got audition next week. Same, same time, same channel. Uh, um, a, same xenomorph uh, time, same xenomorph place. Have a good night, y'all. Ciao, ciao.